the choice to spread love in a world full of pain. The generation willing to be a light in darkness. The selfless desire to serve humanity. The purpose fueled with passion to make a difference. This is Madcasters, the ultimate guide you need to impact the world. What's going on, everyone? This is your host, Brian St. Louis, and I'm here to connect you to impact leaders across the globe who strive to make a difference in their communities and the world. As you listen to these gripping stories and endeavors from inspirational people and organizations, you will gain the confidence to implement strategies to make a difference not only in your personal life, but to impact humanity around you. Please subscribe to Madcasters on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Instagram. Support through Patreon. Together, let's make a difference and change the world. today we have Isa Hara and she is the founder of OV Healthcare is transforming the health and happiness and security of vulnerable children and just being able to hear a lot more about her passion and why she does what she does I believe this is going to be a super phenomenal episode Isa thank you so much for being here today yeah thank you it's my honor I'm so glad to be here absolutely well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what brought you to the place of even creating OV Healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Isa Hara. I'm from Somerset, Kentucky, a little bitty town. Um, I grew up with a mother who had a really good heart for people. Um, she actually was diagnosed with cancer when I was five years old, and I feel like she always just had an eternity wow. perspective. And so really taught us about missions, taught us about the orphans, taught us about the vulnerable. And so I think it was always in my heart. Um, I never imagined I would do it, really. Mm. I struggled with self-esteem as a kid. I went to college. Kind of my claim to fame in high school was like pageants and modeling and like a little bit of acting, things like that. And I just, like, Mm. apart from the way I looked, I didn't know that I was smart enough or that I could really do anything. But when I got to college... um, studied broadcasting for a little while, and then uh, just had a call on my heart to um, to more, to, to make a difference, that I wanted to be more than how I looked or how mm-hmm. I spoke, but that I wanted to actually go out and and do something that filled my heart. And so from there, um, it was all vision and miracles. That's awesome that you went towards something that could fill your heart. What, what did you study when you went to university? Yeah, I ended up studying pre-med. I did pre-med and then I went on to become a physician assistant and a clinical officer in um, medicine and surgery here in Kenya. So I'm duly certified in the U.S. and in Kenya. But I actually didn't um, start my studies in medicine until my junior year of college. So I had already gotten through like my freshman and sophomore year doing everything but human science because I remember I'd even taken astronomy because science was just like not my thing. But then... Um, I 
had this person who asked me, you know, if you could do anything, like what would you do and why? And I was like, oh, well, I'd love to travel all over the world and find the world's most vulnerable children, help them access medical care, all theoretical. I, I joked that it was like my pageant girl answer because I was really good at getting in that dream zone of like, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like, well, if that's the life you want to be living, then why aren't you living it? And I was just so convicted. And I was like, goodness, like, I don't know. There's no one in medicine and anywhere in my family tree. That's not something I feel like I'm capable of doing. Um, but I was so convicted by that. I was like, why, why am I not doing it? And so I dropped my major the day before my junior year of college, switched over to pre-med, was taking like 20 hours a semester, summer, winter, fall, and got through um, pre-med in two years and then went on to PA school. Wow. That's, that's an incredible feat, first of all, by itself to, to have done pre-med in two years. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. But yeah. I mean, that, that, to see the, the fact that someone like that was able to, to push you, to challenge you, I, I hope that individual is still in your life today because you always need someone who's willing yeah. to, to, to get you to that next place, you know? Yeah, it was a complete stranger and I have no idea who they were. That's what's so crazy. It was such a passing interaction. It was actually the person who asked me the question and the person who asked me why were actually two different people. It was an icebreaker Mm. game at a conference where I got that question. And then someone came up to me in the hallway and was like, Hey, if that's the life you want to be living, then why aren't you living it? Took that's all it took. I still, I can't remember their face. Can't remember anything about them, but that's one of the big reasons that I do use my platform. And I, I try to get on and do things like this because I know the power of words because I reach mm. thousands and thousands of children every month around the world because one person asked me a question. And so it just goes to show you, um, we can go out and do so much with our two hands, but there's a lot that can be done with our words that we don't even know is happening. Cause I'm sure that person has no clue what impact their one question has had, you know? So powerful. That's so powerful. Wow. That's amazing. I, you, it's, it's, it's so interesting <laughs> that you say that, though, because sometimes it will be the stranger that says that at very an, mm-hmm. anonymous or or just uh, arbitrary way. In it, but it gets to you in a different way than the person who's been there or been talking to you all your life. And so I'm just really happy mm-hmm. that you went through with your passion. <laughs> Uh, because if you didn't, we wouldn't be having this Thank conversation you. right now. So, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> how does the Kentucky girl go all the way to Kenya? Yeah. And and so because the 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 thing is, you may have you may have had the vision, you may have had the dream, but not everybody always mm-hmm. goes for it, and and in that way. And so, mm-hmm. what got you from Kentucky all the way to Kenya? Can you can you describe for us and paint us the picture? Of, of that journey for you? <laughs> yeah, I think there is a certain um, underperceived value of naivety because I got on a Google search, I bought a plane ticket and I went, it was that simple. And sometimes it is people who are <laughs> people who are that, um, you know, just with the winds that really do make it because it's like, okay, sure. I think I'll go to Kenya. And you just don't overthink it a lot more than that. The problems came um, the struggles came I had to learn a lot of things, you know, would it have been great to like sit back and learn Swahili and an African culture class and ethics and this and that? Oh, absolutely. Would it have been great to maybe travel with another person or know the people that I was showing up to serve with? Yeah. But I do think ultimately, um, you know, being willing to do things that don't make sense 
just going on your gut and going on that strong conviction, that can be really powerful. And that's how things get done really, really quickly. Um, with that, you have to stay humble. You have to stay correctable. Um, I, I think that would be the epic failure is if I came over here knowing nothing and I just automatically thought I knew everything, but I do feel like mm. I came here. Yeah. I fell in love with the people. I knew what I knew and I knew what I didn't know. And I, uh, just linked arms with all the locals and they, they took me under and I just, you know, um, my only goal was to elevate them and to help them develop something really beautiful with what I did have. And that was, you know, a voice and a lot of ambition. Hmm. And so your, your impact as you've been there in Kenya now, how long have you, have you been working in this area and what exactly does OV healthcare do for the people? Yeah, I started working out here in 2012. We moved here in 2017. Was it 2017? We opened the hospital December 2017. And OV Healthcare offers 100% free, like holistic care to children. So um, our big focus is to um, give treatment, to give complete care. So uh, really caring for, like I said, their body, mind, spirit, and also um, preventing children from becoming institutionalized orphans. We started out as what we thought was going to be an orphan hospital because we saw the failures in the system with orphan care and it with healthcare. And we thought those two things combined would, you know, be so needed. But then we thought, how do we get to the root of the problem? How do we keep these children from ever becoming orphans at all so that they have mm. these resources? How do we, how do, how do we go deeper? Um, I think there's so much about NGOs nonprofits, wherever you are in the world, we call them all different things, but um, that there's so much to learn about solution-based systems going in and really wanting to not help just help people, but to fix the problems to prevent them from happening. And so I would say we definitely showed up here wanting to fix the problem. And we've really developed into an organization that prevents the problem that educates. And while we do address it, we do a huge amount of work on advocacy and awareness so that, um, so that every year there's less and less people who are in this demographic that we're targeting. Hmm. So uh, I, I like the fact that you say that because a lot of times there are organizations that more so put on a bandaid to the issues that are going on, but you're looking for solution based. Um, I, I, I yeah. think one of the greatest ways that, that leaders can ever lead is for them not to be leaded at some point. Uh, and so are, are you, mm -hmm. is that yeah. basically the mindset that you're trying to say? You're actually looking for a way to, to get into a place where you might not even be needed in that area as much to, to, to per se? Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I always say what I do, um, I do because I love to do it. Uh, I, it would be a complete liability to my organization if it depended on me, you know, anything could happen to me tomorrow. I've literally been. Sorry, my daughter's like sitting there singing. Um, no, I, I've even been in 10 car accidents in my life in the last, I think it's, they've all been within the last 10 years and I'm not always the one driving. It happens, but I'm like, it would make no sense to build something that depends on me. Like my time is mm -hmm. finite and, um, anything can happen at any time. And my only 
view of success is to empower other people um, and to have something that can live beyond yourself. I think so many times entrepreneurs get in the wrong boat of thinking, the more my business depends on me, the more valuable I am. And I, I don't see myself as valuable if it's depending on me. I see myself as a liability. And I think when you take on that mindset, it's a lot easier to invest in other people. And there were even stages here at the hospital where because of me being, you know, an American, um, because of kind of like the mass colonization and the way that nonprofits have come in and acted, I found that when I was first working here, people were afraid to do anything without me signing off on it, or they felt like they always had to have like extra approval from me. And so I literally, for a period of time, started locking myself up here in my house. I live on the top story of the hospital. And I was like, y'all have got it. Like y'all have got it. And I really started doing a lot of work, um, online, a lot of the work on the U.S. side. And I didn't do that on accident. I did that because I wanted all of our locals to see like, this is your deal. Like you're doing it. You're doing it amazing. And through me kind of taking a step back and like, maybe there was a moment of crisis where they're like, oh my gosh, like, what do we do? What do we do? But through that, they really came out on the other side and like, I can travel, I can do whatever I need to. And they know that this is their hospital. These are their patients and they aren't waiting for the next white person to drop in and volunteer and show them how to do their jobs better. They know that they're the experts. They're the ones who do it best. And when people come in and see our work, um, it's, it's led by the Kenyans a hundred percent. And so that's something that I'm really, really proud of because um, I think that's one thing that'll really shape uh, other nonprofits when people take on that same model of, um, you know, not acting like these developing countries are somehow dependent on us or our knowledge. They're brilliant. You know, they're geniuses. They have their own ways, their own expertise. And we don't come in and do it better. We just come in and provide resources and we come in and provide, um, you know, the network. And um, when you take that stance, I think that's what's made this explode. Um, I don't take any credit. I think that um, we just really we depended a lot on the locals and um, empowered them. And through that, we have something really spectacular. I just really want to say I respect you a lot uh, for saying what you're saying here and uh, for, for moving in the direction that you choose to move, because there are a lot of individuals who move with that mentality of the, of the savior complex, uh, and as though mm-hmm. when yeah. I come into when I come into this place, that's when everything's going to change. That's when I'm going to be able to to change the world in that sense. But they need me so much. But what you did, you empowered the mm-hmm. people, not necessarily that they didn't have it within themselves, but you just gave them the understanding that they did have it. And you empowered them through it. You yeah. gave them the leadership. You gave them the the, the the status or or the resources to make sure that they are able to move forward in a way that they know that no matter who is, yeah. is present they can still make things happen for their community i love that i think that's as- absolutely amazing yeah. uh, for yeah. you as a leader uh and for you as a as a individual to because uh, you're not um you're young and so for your for your mind already to be at that place i think that that's uh that's really that's a really amazing way to think already and so yeah i just Thank i just you. really i just really <laughs> want you to know that uh and for our listeners to understand that because it, it's it's important too many organizations i've, I've seen i've heard of stories and 
and you 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 see how the people move in a certain direction and so to see that with you i think that's going to be it, it makes it that much better uh, and so I kind of want to still touch on this area, though, of this holistic care, because a lot more mm-hmm. organizations, as we know, especially when they go to to different countries around the world, they focus more so on the treatment side. And I know that you guys do have a lot of treatment that's going on in your hospital. Clearly, it's a hospital. Uh, but can you touch a little bit more sure. on that full side of, of, like, let's say, rebuilding the families? What does that look like and how does yeah. that uh, sh- how does that show itself to to not just the hospital now, but to the community around. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I said, there are those two major aspects and they're almost separate, the rebuilding of the families and then the the holistic care that we have here. So mm-hmm. the, real, the rebuilding of the families is how do we keep children from becoming orphans? Um, yeah. the, the very critical thing um, that I focus on a lot is the fact that I believe the word orphan is a very huge and um, ugly marketing tactic. Mm. Uh, Whenever I grew up, I always had a heart for orphans, but I imagined like many do children sitting in a building all alone with no living relatives. Some Mm -hmm. like strike of disaster took their mom, their dad, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, like nobody loves this child. Nobody wants this child. So they're sitting in a house somewhere waiting for some first world family to come and save them. Like that is what, I legitimately thought for almost all of my life until I moved here. And even probably for the first few years I was serving here, it took me a long time to figure out it is so rare. I think it's less than 0.05% of children who actually would have a circumstance like that in modern times, even um, if a child is abandoned. Yeah. I mean, it's like one in like one in out of hundreds. There's usually not like there's either a living father, a living grandmother, a living aunt, living uncle. Um, there's someone in their life. And even if they've been abandoned, they can usually, um, cause there are cases of abandoned children, um, mm. but they can usually identify a relative. Now in all of these cases, should a child be back with that family? No, just like in America, how we have a foster care system. Sometimes there are situations socially that, um, you know, children still yeah. need to have that like something in between, some sort of system. But the problem that we have here is poverty. And so instead of um, it being a social situation or a thing where people don't want their children, it's usually they can't afford formula or they're literally having to bury their wife and they have to go back to work and they have five other kids and they have no way to take care of this baby. So we're capitalizing on the fact that someone is in a temporary crisis and we're putting children in institutions permanently. Then the problem comes in that those children become sponsored, sponsored children, the children that you put on your fridge and you sponsor until they turn 18 years old. But the problem with that is the child becomes an income making product. And so that child will stay in an orphanage. They will not get sponsored. The family will never reconnect with them. They, they become, I, it's almost like imprisoned and it's not every organization, but I do see a lot of organizations where children just are kept in orphanages because of either sponsorship or because there's no opportunity to bond. And so if you take a baby away from their dad and they never have the opportunity to visit them, or that's not encouraged, or there's no, um, 
they see it as surrendering their child to an orphanage, you're making that child into an orphan. They aren't an orphan. You're creating an orphan. Um, whereas what we try to do is infant protection programs. So when we see a father start to take his child to an orphanage, we intervene and we're like, hey, like, let us come in. We'll provide formula. We have like loving grandmothers and mothers here that'll love your child. Like you can come and bond with them whenever you have the time and opportunity. Um, and we just facilitate that. And it's amazing because we usually will say, you know, we'll take up to, you know, maybe even if you need two years to stabilize, like we have the resources for you to even have your child here for that long. But most people after six months, they really want their child back or even children who have severe disabilities or severe illnesses who are put in orphanages and really left to die. Uh, honestly, the parents can't afford the medical care. It's too hard for them. We can even get kids who are completely disabled, who I was told in this culture were seen as demon possessed or people just didn't want them. But the reality was the parents are just overwhelmed. And when we can get the kids in a condition to where they can swallow on their own, where they can sit up, where the parents aren't just honestly afraid that their child is going to die, they want their child back. So even um, there's so many things that we put on impoverished people. They don't want their kids if they're poor. They don't want their kids if they're sick. They don't want their kids if they're disabled. There's this stigmatization and this stigmatization. And I've even said those things before because I believed them. But now I really do see that, you know, people everywhere, they love their child, but times of desperation make you think like that this is your only option where we should be creating alternatives. And um, yeah, that's my heart is to prevent children from becoming orphans. Find out why, why are they being abandoned? Is there something to do with um, maybe the fact that we aren't treating postpartum depression? So just like in America, a lot of women get postpartum depression. It makes them want to go and throw their babies. Well, here we aren't giving out antidepressants. And so, you know, that's going to happen with that consequence. So are we following up? You won't know how many children come here who are abandoned. They tell me their mom gave birth and became mad. She became a mad woman. Well, she has postpartum depression and that's not going to be forever. She didn't just go and get schizophrenia out of nowhere. Like, but it's teaching these things being the advocate, working with the professionals, the mental health professionals, the police department, all the people that you can to just try to keep the child from becoming an orphan, um, to keep the child from being abandoned. Whenever, And I think I, I really do think we've gotten such an obsession with helping orphans and with adoption that we forget about actually protecting children. Like we forget about um, these are real life humans. And there are so many times where I see orphanages that are just jam packed. They cannot fit in even one more child. And so when you do have a child who's in an abusive home or who legitimately has no one in the world, they can't even get in to these orphanages because they're so overpacked. And so I think it's really teaching people like there's we're never going to run out of children to adopt. We're never going to run out of children to serve, but we don't have to create them in order to make an impact. And if we are creating them, we aren't even making an impact or a positive impact. You know what I mean? We're, we're creating the problem that we're fixing. That's heavy. That That's heavy. Uh, just everything you just yeah. said there, when it comes to even the concept of, that that terminology you just used with creating an orphan, I think that mm-hmm. that's something that uh, I've never even heard before. To be honest, it it's <laughs> it it took me uh, just a second there to to picture this whole this whole scheme that you just showed. 
and and how mm-hmm. it like you said, I mean we, we talk about making a difference about impacting lives, but this is this is impact in the negative direction. You and and yeah. so many I mean you're saying it and it makes sense. A lot of the resources that individuals have here, let's say in Canada or America, when a woman is dealing with postpartum depression, um, if those resources are not there in certain countries in Africa or certain communities in Africa, it's just it's it's not necessarily being given to them. And so it's just seen as a as an issue and, and families are being ripped apart and and mothers are, are losing their children and fathers are losing their children. And it's all mm-hmm. because we don't actually look to see mm-hmm. the true root issue. It's, it, and it's not just this bandaid. Oh, we're just going to take away their child that, that actually destroys families and, or I mean, yeah. typically. And, and if it's, yeah. if we're not seeing the full picture, then we're not going to be able to truly find healing for, for those families, for those children either. So, wow, that's, yeah, that's yeah. it's, it's, it's really striking to think about all the things. And, you know, I just tell people like there's, I mean, I'm not saying don't support organizations clearly. Like yeah, we have course. massive needs, even at our own organization. Like it's not yeah. a matter of trust. It's a matter of accountability yeah. um, because I think so many, there are good hearted nonprofits that have to just fight with the best of them. You know, we're all competing in this world. So when we can inform people about these things mm. and they can start asking the people that they're sponsoring, like, Hey, I've been sponsoring my child for five years. Has anyone ever come and wanted to adopt them? Like, do they have any living relatives? Um, yeah. And it's a hard thing. Cause even in the adoption world, I see a lot of corruption because, you know, um, the stories aren't always true. The stories about how the children get there, or who's living, who's not. Um, and adoption is such an industry. I've adopted two little girls. They're my heart and soul. Um, but I will even say the stories that I was told about both of them were not, um, not on par with what it is. And it took me years and years. Now my oldest daughter, like, she has five siblings and I, they all live in different parts of Kenya. Some live with the aunts and uncles, but they're older than her, but she has a living grandma. And I, I now have luckily connected with all of them. And um, she has a relationship. Her old, her older sister is actually in the other room. She's staying with us for her spring vacation right now. But I see the love, like the innate love that she has for her biological grandmother and her siblings. And I'm like, wow, you know, I would have been told that this was a child with a such and such social situation and such and such this and no living this. And I would have taken her, like if I were living in America and maybe adopted her, um, raised her there thinking she had no one here telling her she had no one here her entire life and deprived her of like hundreds of cousins, brothers, sisters, grandmas who love her. And like that innate love is there. And so I think we're all responsible, particularly adoptive parents for like figuring out the true history of our children, who is living, um, what were the options of the family? Are we really the best possible choice? And if we are in a situation, of course, we love our children. They're the best things that ever happened, but you know, their family and their heritage are their birthright. So if you're going to take a child, you know, we, we put so much heroism on adoption. But if you think about it, you're ripping mm-hmm. a child out of their culture and all of their living relatives. You're taking them home. And 
they aren't choosing you, you're choosing them. And so you aren't giving them a gift. They're, they're the gift. They're, they're becoming a gift. They're, they're leaving everything they know to become a part of your family and really honoring that and knowing that we have a responsibility um, to, you know, to fight for whatever family and world that they have. You don't just remove a child from an orphanage and think that you did them a favor. You really have to um, dig into that and, and keep them connected at, at all costs. I really do believe that. Yeah, it's a lot of heavy things. And I will say I'm always learning. Like if you're listening to this mm-hmm. podcast five years from now, like it'll be different than it is today. But that's all I ask of anyone is to stay receptive, learn. And if if things aren't changing and organizations aren't changing their approach every few years, like check in on that and figure out why. Um, because sometimes some organizations are so afraid to change anything they do or they find something that's working. And yeah, we just, we all need accountability. Um, and we have to speak up for, for the children and, and the people who can't speak up for themselves. Mm. Powerful. Yeah, I, I mean, we're going to be continuing this discussion, but I just really just want to say thank you uh, for what you're doing. Uh, and a lot of what you're saying, I haven't really heard before when it, or from a founder, especially from an organization mm. uh, as yourself. And so I, I think that like the, the more I'm, I'm hearing, the more I'm, I'm listening and I'm just I'm getting more enthralled. I'm getting more excited. And, and it's definitely somewhere that I, I would want to uh, help in and to impact whichever way that I can as well. Um, and interesting enough, you, you do have, well, actually, before we get into that, I, I, can you tell us those, some stories or some experiences that, that have in, happened and encountered throughout, uh, OV healthcare and your hospital and some, some of the good, let's say some feel good stories that have happened and, yeah. and some positive ways that people have been able to, to grow through these, uh, through, through their time through OV healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So goodness, it's, it really is like when you walk through the halls and you just see the children, um, we have all different elements of care here. We have children who are here for a day. It costs a quarter. They get over their life threatening disease and you're done or or a medical consult out on the field. It's $2 and you're done. But then you have children who have the more advanced conditions. We take care of cancer. We take care of advanced HIV AIDS. We take care of um, anything you can imagine and surgical cases. And so um, there's all kinds of different miracles. But I think some of the ones that I really love most are we have a nursing home here um, for kids who are very critically ill and who need a little bit longer care. And so actually getting to see the transition over months and months of time. And one of our nursing home patients that I can think of is Jekania. And he was 11 years old. And um, when he came to us and he had never been to school a day in his life and he would just Wow. go down the road. He, his, his arms and legs didn't work at all. And he would just move on his buttocks like down the road and just beg people to climb mango trees. He would look for mango trees and he begged people to climb and like get the mango for him so that he would have something to eat that day. And, um, he would tell us he would always, he would cry every day when he would see the kids walking to school because his only dream was just to get an education and to have a future. And, um, he was really depressed that like that wasn't in the cards for him. And luckily he was brought to us and we were able to get him a surgery. And actually um, the orthopedic surgery was not successful. Um, But what was, was 
the empowerment, you know, we did, we did physical therapy and that did help him. Um, but the renewing of his mind, the ability to go to school here at the hospital, we, we give classes to any child. It's amazing. Even you'll walk in and see a child on an IV bag. You wouldn't even see them in a school in America, but they're able to go to classes here. We mm-hmm. have really made that catered towards them, but he's learned to read. He's learned to speak three languages. He, he, um, draws like and paints masterpieces using only his mouth. Um, I mean, he is spectacular. And not only that, um, even with the surgery, the surgery that we did was for him to be able to bend his legs because he had joint contractures. Mm-hmm. But I'm not kidding you, even though the surgery did not end up working for him, you know, there was a chance that it wouldn't. He taught himself how to stand. And he, we have a five-story building. He can scale up and down the steps by himself. Like, wow. it is absolutely incredible. And I mean, he's one of the brightest kids in his class and he wants to go on and be an eye doctor. I always joke. He says like with a six story hospital and I'm like, you want to outdo me because he, like ours is a five story hospital, but the way he dreams and he's a leader and he has so much confidence. Um, he's literally like the king of the castle here at the hospital because mm-hmm. he's been here the longest and he's one of the oldest boys. And so I think just seeing this transition of this like tiny kid, like going down the road, depressed, begging for food to being a child who's like literally giant, tall, standing on his own, painting, playing. He'll even play drums with his mouth. And like mm-hmm. it is it is really, and now just wanting to be a doctor and, and not even like dreaming of it, but like believing that he'll, he will be a doctor, um, getting to see his, his father come in and see his condition and like being so proud of his son. Um, I mean, it's miraculous. And, uh, we have so many stories like that. I know there's a little boy named Sally. Um, when we found him, he was four years old and they told me four and I was like four months and they're like, no, four years. He was literally, um, I think he might've been six pounds when we found oh, him. He was tiny. Goodness. He was tiny. He had a twin sister who also uh, looked very young. They were extremely malnourished. Um, he couldn't talk, couldn't feed himself, was like on the verge of death. And now is like the chubbiest, like he runs around, he plays. And we find so many kids who... Um, are in those conditions. Uh, particularly, I love when we find um, like a, a little boy like Steven. He was so malnourished, a lot like Sally, but his dad sold everything, his home, all of his possessions, and they never could get help. Um, he was trying to get his son help, but he couldn't. And we were able to um, re-nourish Steven. And he's back home with his dad now. And it's just when you see these things, you see these families that were falling apart or these children who had no confidence or no opportunity for a future and you see them thriving and you see them um, leading and believing in their dreams. It's There's just nothing on earth like it. Um, it's really powerful and I can't wait to see, um, you know, it is funny that you'd mentioned like the the savior thing earlier because that's something anyone any white led organization is always going to go under fire for being like savior complex and I've been through that myself and um, one of the most profound things that anyone ever said to me is like you know all you can do is like what you're doing be humble be correctable be willing to learn empower the people and know that these children are going to grow up and be adults who can tell their own story mm-hmm. so you know you have an accountability system and so always just leading with integrity and always just leading Mm. with like, you know, 
leading with the people who know and, and, and never thinking of yourself more highly than anyone else. Um, and then it's, it's so amazing. The children really do become our biggest advocates. And uh, now some of them who have even been here over three years, getting to hear them tell their own testimonies and like retelling their own stories. It's really beautiful. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I could give you millions of stories. There's so many children here, yeah, but those absolutely. are some of my, some of my favorites. Wow, that just brings a, a, like a huge smile to my face. Uh, and <laughs> you know what actually brought me a lot of joy was, I mean, well, the first one, there's there's this guy, I remember I saw this painting. Um, I think he, I can't remember exactly which country he's from in Africa, but he actually made this whole mural with his mouth, you know, but he has his hands and his feet, uh, but he still made this mural with his mouth. And I found it like, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I was just like, wow, how does this guy do it? I think he did it backwards or something, yeah. something crazy like that. <laughs> but to know, like, you know, hey, you have no limits, you know, even through the most dire situations that you go through in life, uh, you know, so, so there, there's always a way through and, and for a way for you to be able to to use what you have to still be able to inspire people. I know that that kid is going to be able to inspire many. And then yeah. when you when you set up the other story uh, about the, the child who I think his name was Sally, who was uh, yeah. malnourished, it's it's very it was very heartwarming to hear that the family was reunited. The father mm-hmm. wanted everything to do with with his with his children. He did everything he could, mm-hmm. and you were all there, mm-hmm. and didn't separate the families after you were able to to you know mm-hmm. refill that child to where he needed to be but you were able to bring yeah. him back together and i think that that right there is is what it is it's it's not always mm-hmm. about being uh, the one to take and i i did this wonderful story and now someone else is being able to reap the benefits or 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 the pleasure yeah. of, of a healthy child but the person yeah. who was there through the malnourishment, through the pain, through the sorrow, mm-hmm. you were able to to be there through that whole situation, yeah. and and now yeah. he's able to now have his family back. And so mm-hmm. I just I, yeah. I find that to be really amazing, absolutely. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I think there um, it just reminded me too because I was thinking about um, two little girls that we have, and this this speaks to what I talked about earlier. Um, about really making sure that you know the full story. I think any NGO, any nonprofit, um, it's to fight for your children and to never take like the first thing you're told is Bible because, you know, we're humans and we're in a fallen world and orphans particularly are so vulnerable in the fact that police departments or good Samaritans or whoever shows up and turns them in, they probably don't know that much about their life. You know, they're orphans or they're abandoned, but I know there were these two beautiful twin girls who came here. They're absolutely gorgeous. They're perfect. Everyone who saw their picture, we posted their picture on our website. Everyone who saw them was like, we want to adopt to them. Um, My daughter fell in love with them. I mean, I would have adopted them myself. Oh my goodness. But what we ended up finding out is their mother was a 14-year-old total orphan. Um, And I'm not sure if she had been compromised or what exactly had happened, but um, the mother loved her little girl. She was a total orphan, like a actual total orphan. And 
those little girls were her only family. Like she had daughters. And so now for the first time in her life, she has family. I could have very easily adopted those little girls who they told me was born to a child bride or born to, um, you know, or they were abandoned or whatever the story was at first. Mm -hmm. But actually when I dug in and found out like their mother, the reason she can't take care of them is because she's an orphaned girl who needs to continue going to school and getting her own education. And so now she's able to come here and visit her daughters and they're beautiful and they're perfect and they have a wonderful bond. And just to think of like, I could have kept, you know, if I didn't keep looking into that story, I could have kept those two little girls who yes, were very malnourished because, you know, and a 14 year old orphan has a hard time taking care of two twin baby girls. Even a, a perfectly healthy woman ha- would have trouble taking care of two baby girls completely by themselves. But when you can find people who are that vulnerable, but they need each other's love and they just need support, you know, they don't need you to um, necessarily remove the kid. But if you can, I think everywhere in the world needs this. I think there's, mm. there are two, we're too eager to take children away from, um, from parents. I, I really believe that, um, you know, so often there, it just breaks my heart because I see how overcrowded orphanages are. Mm -hmm. And I see the sheer number of children who never get to experience a family because they grew up in an orphanage. So at 18 Mm -hmm. years old, they're thrown out into the world and they have no one, there's no one to go for the holidays and it can drive them into destructive behaviors, drugs, alcohol, prostitution, because they're seeking this, um, this bond and this high, like this love that they've never had. And it's, it's not ideal for anyone to grow up in an institution. It is not ideal. If you can prevent it, it's our, our duty to do that. And I can tell you, even still, I see the numbers. I see the number of kids. We're never going to run out of children to adopt. We're never going to run out of children to support. I hope we do. I hope we do one day, but it's not happening soon. And so that can't even be, I I don't even think people know that we have that fear, but I can tell you as someone whose heart is for the orphan, like it is just, um, yeah, we have so much, so much work to do before we're going to be anywhere near adoption being of the past. I don't think it will happen. I think there will always be circumstances, but um, there is an amount of urgency that we have to have and like clearing these institutions up and making room for the children who need them. I'll tell you one more story, but um, I know there was a little boy who actually um, he had been abused. Someone had heated up a knife and like burned him all over his body. And we treated him here and um, his burns were healed and everything. And as he was, as we were discharging him, I realized that, they were going to take him right back to his home that he came from mm-hmm. um, because the orphanage was full. The orphanage didn't have another bed. And luckily, like we found out what was going on and we refused, you know, to discharge him. And we kept him at the hospital until we were able to find a safe home for him to go back to. But those things are happening every day. And we're, if we're sponsoring a child to be in an orphanage that doesn't need to be there, the child who is in those that terrible situation who needs that bed can't get it. And to always have that perspective in mind. And um, yeah, I think just always be so aware, never be afraid because there's so many needs. I mean, children die every single day because they can't access healthcare or because they don't have proper representation. We don't have to live in fear, but we should always, always fight for um, awareness and fight for complete and total transparency within our organizations. And um letting our organizations feel secure. Like, like I'm going to continue sponsoring you, even if you return my child to 
their home. Like that's the goal. Like really right. knowing that the goal isn't to sponsor a child until they're 18 years old, but to give them the best life possible. And um, that's not something we're taught. And a lot of people do like, oh, you get rid of my sponsored child. I'm going to stop sponsoring because that was my child. They're on my fridge. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And um, yeah, just changing our total perspective and just checking our hearts, checking our intentions and knowing um, prevention is always best. And there will there will always be people to serve. Can I can I ask this question? Uh, if you don't yeah. really actually know, um, let me know. But uh, the question I have right now is: a lot of people donate money to some of these organizations that are helping out in certain countries, uh, and especially mm-hmm. you know we see it on the we see it on the internet. Uh, back in the day, we used to see it on TV, but you know everything's on the internet now, and. Uh, you have the children who are malnourished mm-hmm. and the people who are who are helping and then they have the sad song in the back. How much yeah. do you know or, you know, because I know you've been building quite a bit of connections, but do you know how much mm-hmm. money is actually being uh, given to support those children rather than mm-hmm. than the organization itself? Like how much is being pocketed? How much is actually being serve in some of these places mm. because I, I feel like I have a hard time giving money to some to, to these yeah. places because I don't I don't know if it's actually going to that child or if it's going to into somebody's pocket. Yeah, I think it really depends on the institution. And I will say that not everybody who's transparent is necessarily the best. And there's a lot of shaming in the nonprofit world. Um, particularly a lot of people who are like, oh, 100% of our donations go to this. And then we have mm-hmm. people who pay for all of our overhead. Like, that's fantastic. But that's still, you know, the $3 million that you're putting towards overhead is still $3 million. Like, whether someone knows what it's going to or not, it's still, like, if you're still pocketing $200,000 a year, you're pocketing $200,000 a year. And I yeah. think that we build up so much fear around people doing um like, like executive salaries or all of these things that sometimes even the organizations, if, if they want to hide it, they're going to hide it. So it's just, um, it's knowing who you are looking for the outcomes are, you know, are they able to prove every single project that they're doing? Um, and I, I know that devastation is still what sells. And that breaks my heart mm-hmm. because when children are suffering, they're suffering for a reason. And if you constantly see sad stories and sad stories and you aren't seeing the follow through, um, I think that's always a warning flag. I know that one of the biggest problems I see is people will come overseas on these short-term mission trips and they look for the poorest orphanages. They look for the poorest schools and they want to go in and drop a lot of money in these facilities because they're like, okay, well, you know, they're so poor. I want to help the poorest. And I was the same way, genuinely. Like when I first came here, I had my eyes out. Like I wanted to see the real poverty. I wanted to help the poorest people. But really some of these organizations that look like bells and whistles and like, oh my gosh, they're spending all their money on marketing or they're spending all their money on their buildings or on their galas. Sometimes those people are investing so much in their own organizations and we're so afraid to give to them because they don't need any more, but they're actually the ones who are doing things integrously. Whereas people who look really poor and they look like they're suffering, it's because the money's being pocketed and because they're, they're 
banking on that suffering. They're banking on that exploitation of poverty in order to be able to do their job. And so I know that's like a round and round answer. It's hard to say, um, but it really is just knowing who you're giving to. And when you find an organization that you really trust, like let's say um, something that I really respect is when people will like reach out to me and be like, Hey, um, you know, this is an organization that I want to help, or this person's asking for money for healthcare. Like how um, do you think that I should? And I can't always say that, but I respect that, like, even though they aren't wanting to help me, they're contacting me first because they trust me and they trust Mm -hmm. um, my ability to invest. And I think that's what everybody should do is like, if you find something that looks like it really, really, really needs help, have someone in your life or have an organization that can be kind of the middleman and can help you help them. Because sometimes if you just put a lot of money or even a little money in the wrong place, it isn't going to serve as fully. yeah, it, it is. It is just, uh, and I think as a whole, we just have to, we have to grow as nonprofits. Um, mm-hmm. the nonprofit world is hard for me. Like I, I, <laughs> um, I was blessed because actually I applied to work with a lot of mission agencies a lot mm-hmm. and I got turned down so many times because I would not do things the way that other mission, mission agencies would. I remember I got accepted with one finally and they're like, okay, you just, before we're going to let you go overseas and literally start my own hospital. Um, I was trying to be a missionary at my own hospital. They're like, you have to raise $80,000. You have to make $80,000 a year. And I will tell you, I served probably 10,000 children my first year here. And it cost me $100,000 to do that. I did not need an $80,000 salary to be here working. I don't, I didn't even need a salary. I used to sell like skincare products on the side to pay for myself. Um, and I still, I still run my own business to pay for my own income. And, um, there are so many mission agencies that make it really difficult. Like they, they make it like if you're an American living overseas, you know, you have to have this big salary. And I was like, listen, I'm not going to sit here and take $80,000 a year when I pay someone else $200 a month. I'm not going to do it. And, you know, I can live on nothing here. And um, that's what I do. You know, I live within the hospital building. And so, um, but I think that we really have a broken system. We have a system um, that scares people from giving to organizations that have a lot of overhead, although marketing, you know, I know you're an entrepreneur as well. Marketing is not a shallow investment. If someone has a lot of money in their marketing, that's duplicating. And so I can really see a lot of people get crushed on how much they put into their marketing or how much they get into their travel. But if they're speaking, if they're a talented speaker and they're able to go and raise money and raise awareness, those things are valuable. So I think it's not being afraid. First of all, it's like, it's just knowing that there are good organizations out there, but then just knowing the warning signs and knowing that there have just been centuries of people doing it wrong and centuries of people fear mongering and, and, the poverty porn, as they call it. Um, and that's what a lot of people have to resort to because that's what people give money to. And so when we can reset our mind and train ourselves to not just want to give to the thing that looks the most devastating, but want to give to the thing that looks like the kids are thriving, like they're dressed well, they're clean, they're healthy. And, um, you know, really honoring the fact that maybe we aren't showing you all of the really crazy bad stuff. Like there's a lot of suffering that happens here. And I used to show a lot more before and afters than I do now. And sometimes still I'm like, um, you know, 
it's hard, but that is how, like, that is how people bring in so much money is by showing these big shocking things. And what I try to do, it takes longer, but is, you know, build relationships and, and build trust and let people know that like, cause I mean, I had a, I had a child legitimately, I've never seen a bigger head in my entire life. It was hydrocephalus. I can't even tell you, like it, it did not, it's worse than any picture you've ever seen. And I chose to not put that picture up. Even though that picture, I needed like $10,000 for that surgery. It was a critical, critical case. But I was like, it's so bad that I do not want to show it. And if there are times where we're in a case like that, and I do, like I'll cover the eyes so that the patient can't be seen. And that's not something I used to do because I'm like, when it comes down to it, it's better for them to have money for the surgery than to die because they don't have money. But if you can go to battle and if you can if you can protect, you know, the, um, protect the privacy and the dignity of a child, um, it's always better to do that. And so, you know, I will say whenever we posted the sadder pictures, whenever we posted the befores and afters a lot more, we still will, you know, with class and in order to show the progress and to show accountability, but I don't think anybody should be forced to necessarily do that because, uh, you know, we have to, we have to honor our patients. I'm like, I, I do think of like my, my daughter winter. Um, and whenever she came here, she weighed literally a kilogram. So like three pounds and she was three months old and her family, like she now weighs 12 pounds and her, her grandma came and visited her. And she actually asked me for that before picture. And I do think there are times, and she wanted to go around and show everyone in the village, like, her granddaughter and the transformation she'd made. And so I think, you know, there are times where the before and afters are very empowering and they speak to God and they speak to miracles and they speak to the needs. Um, but also to, to not just wait for those critical cases, to not just wait for those really sad stories, but to be active and to realize the gift that it is to know that you're saving lives, just to know, um, and how much even more of a reward it is to, um, trust that that's happening without, without having to wait for that moment of crisis to be proactive and to partner with people who, you know, are doing the work. Isa, the, the more and more you speak, the, the more I respect you more. And it's just, <laughs> you, you really have a great mindset as to what you do and the impact that you're making, the moral ethics that you have behind this organization. Uh, if if I could put my stamp of approval, if that means much, um, I'm definitely putting <laughs> my stamp of approval on OV Healthcare. But I'm not just doing that for OV Healthcare; is also for you as an individual, Isa Hera. You're you're amazing. You're great, and I and I and I'm I, I'm really happy we were able to get this episode because it's just it just shows. Uh, well, first of all, a lot of transparency, and it, and it shows how much. We need to know uh, as we're moving on or trying to help or impact the world, you know, it's, it's so important mm -hmm. for us to have the knowledge behind what we do and to have all mm -hmm. the, the correct uh, understandings of facts behind what is actually yeah. happening. And so thank you so much for sharing so much yeah. of, of that yeah. aspect. <laughs> thank um, you for the way you've angled this interview too. I will say I, I used to feel like, 
a damsel in distress at times when I'd get on interviews like this and mm-hmm. I'd get, I'd get off. And then it's like the heart of Africa, mother Africa. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, why are they doing this? Or like, they were growing a fan base for me. Like mm-hmm. I was mother to or like literally the modern day mother Teresa. There's so many different things that you can find um, that were hooked to my name. And I was like, why, why am I like, why every show is everybody centering me? But the reason was I wasn't telling stories like this. Like I wasn't giving you this disruptive information or the, the parts where I failed. And so anytime I do an interview like this, it's my goal for people to walk away knowing like, Hey, this is messy. Hey, I have done it imperfectly, but because of the locals here, because of my failures and my ability to be corrected, that's all it's taken for me to be able to make a difference in the world and, and to use my voice. And I truly believe that anyone in the world could do what I do from right where they are. I choose to be here. I love to raise my daughters in their own culture, but so much of what I do is online, getting on here, sharing the stories. And we all, we all have the opportunity to do that. And so I always hope my, my biggest goal of anything like this is always to not walk away with people being like, Isa Hera is the most like life changing person I've ever met, or she does incredible things, but I want people to be like, wow, I can do incredible things. Or like, I feel more empowered to give, or I feel more empowered to, to change the world. I think I have more direction doing this. And so thank you for, you know, for keeping this so focused on the children and on the work and on the industry as a whole, because, um, yeah, that's, that's my heart is just for people to really come away with a better knowledge of, um, of their own ability. That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about host a camp and how we can also help and donate to your cause as well? Yeah. Yeah. So an impact camp is where you can treat 1000 children uh, or sorry, 500 children for a thousand dollars. It's $2 per child per consult. Um, That's a big way for us to go out and to find children who are in need right where they are to be able to um, treat right there. And also to find some really critical cases that otherwise couldn't have made it into the hospital. Um, The other ways to give are if you give continuously, if you give monthly, or even if you give one time um, in order for a child to stay here, it takes nutrition, it takes physical therapy, it takes, um, you know, they have counseling twice a week, um, spiritual uh, classes twice a week. They have school every day. Um, there's so much that goes into here. That's $11 a night, all their pajamas, all their, they have like mamas who are assigned to them while they stay here. I can't even go through massage. Like, I mean, it, it's literally, I like to say it's like the Disneyland of hospitals. We try to make sure that every base is covered. And so $11 a night uh, for a child to have literally the love of like their, their grandmamas and their mamas who are their caregivers mm-hmm. here, having all those resources. It's almost like it, there's some critical care units, but then the nursing ha- home unit is like a summer camp. Like you're literally giving kids access to not just healthcare, but to transformation and to their future and to their confidence. And they thrive while they're here. We make certain mm-hmm. that this is like, it really is a transformational experience. So, you know, the, the $2 for the consultations are, are really beautiful. That's a huge way to make an impact. But even just by giving continuously, we give you access to um, even there's a new membership that's coming up where once a month you'll be able to come and like interactively visit with the children and the doctors here. And you'll be able to meet with me once a month for 
for a Q&A and you'll also have uh, access to the, the network of other people in social impact and getting to get together and talk about like, what are your dreams for changing the world? Like, what do you do? Um, what inspires you? And having that community of people, because we don't want giving to be one-sided. We want you to really get the entire experience of like, mm-hmm. I'm changing my life too. You know, I think when there's a difference in, in that, like social investments and in just donations. And we want people to feel like they're investing and like, they're really getting the life change as well. And they're getting that network as well. And they're getting empowered and, and learning the things, just like what we talked about today, because I think that's where the the change comes in. We don't want it to be a transaction. We really want it to be an experience and something that um, it's the most valuable thing that ever happened to me, um, getting to do this work. And I don't want to deprive anyone of like the knowledge of, of what they're doing here. Yeah. Well, well, Lisa, if you ever would have me, I would love to to come out <laughs> at some time to to come and see the facility and be a part of, of what you're doing in some way, shape, or form. I, I love mm-hmm. what what you stand for once again, and um, this is kind of a spur of the moment thing, but I'm going to find a way to 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 donate mm-hmm. and host a a, a camp. I, I want to be able to do that, and we'll do that through our Madcasters. Uh, Instagram through our social media and we're going to, we're going to look for a way to, to host a camp. And so, um, thank you Uh, for even having that. I I love, I love that, uh, that concept and definitely going to do what we can to make sure that we, we support what you're doing and, and help impact lives as, as, as you're doing yourself. And so, yeah, that that's truly amazing. Before we end this episode, you as a founder and entrepreneur, you, you've done so much and you've been able to to come out of to your comfort zone. And and like you said, you know, you, you're building this network of, of individuals who are focused on social impact. Uh, but but what would you say uh, to our listeners who are hearing your story and they have they have dreams, they have goals, they have things that they want to to grow and to make into a reality. But sometimes you just don't know where to start or when to start. Uh, and, and quite interestingly enough, um, I didn't even know this about you, but as I was just reading here, you also mm-hmm. have dyslexia. Is that correct? I do. Yeah. Yeah. That was a wow. huge part where we, we skipped over that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's crazy. Cause I, that's one of the biggest parts of my story is I switched to pre-med. I got through it in two years, but I also failed two classes. I had to retake wow. college algebra and college chemistry. I mean, I'm a total underdog in this space. So that, yeah. Why wow. don't we throw that out there? I feel like everybody should always know because I'm like, the more of a loser I am, genuinely, the more people believe they can do it. There's so many people who will just quit. Like they won't even apply to medical school because they have a B. So let it be known Mm. that, you know, (laughs) anything can happen. And if you're called to it, like it will, it will come to fruition. You just can't help. You can't help it. You can't undo what, what you're meant to do. Mm. That's, I love that. You can't undo what you're (laughs) meant to do. I love that. All those who are listening, just remember, you cannot undo what you're meant to do. You're just yeah. set on purpose, and you are the one that needs to make that into a reality. I think that we, we talk about that a lot of Madcasters because uh, it, it's so important to know that whatever has come into your brain, your mind, you're the one that needs to make that into a reality because it's 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 your baby. It's it's your concept. God has given that to you specifically, and so so important for us to to make those into reality and not to keep them buried within ourselves. And so 
And once again, Isa, thank you so much for coming on to Madcasters. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say uh, before you leave as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, I'm just so grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your yes. support. And as you were saying, you know, anyone who has a dream, anyone who has a vision that is, um, you know, 50% of my time is my own organization. 50% of my time is actually helping other people do the exact same thing. So I am an open book. I have all types of resources. And so if someone has a vision on their heart um, and they would like, you know, more information or, or just support on how they can uh, bring that own vision into fruition or, or, you know, testing their own intentions, then they can just reach out to me directly. I'm on every platform exactly as my name is spelled here. Um, and I, I love to support other people um, in, in their own dreams and their own goals for world change. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, you can also, can you give us all your social media, your, your websites, anywhere that we can find you? As yeah. Well? Yep. It's ovihealthcare.org. And then um, OVI Healthcare on it's on LinkedIn, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. Venmo is OVI Healthcare. It's just all OVI Healthcare. And then um, pronounced O V, but spelled O V I. Um, and then for me, it's just Izahara, I Z A H E H R E. Um, I am also on every platform, um, just with my first and last name. Awesome. And then easiest way to help if, if individuals just want to donate to this cause as well. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone wants to donate, um, it's on our official website, ovihealthcare.org or through our Venmo, which is just OVI Healthcare. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much again, Isa. Really appreciate this conversation, yeah, this candid you. conversation and looking forward to continued relationships because I, I think that there's something big that's going to be done and I'm looking forward to possibly having you a part of that. Thank you so much. Thank Have you so day. much. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning into today's episode of Madcasters with your host, Brian St. Louis. Please remember, do what you are called to bring into this world. Someone's life depends on your willingness to obey your calling. You are special and you have something positive to bring to this world that no one else can. Every Thursday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time, a new episode will be ready for you to listen and grow from. Be sure to subscribe to Madcasters on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Instagram at Madcasters. Support the podcast through patreon.com backslash madcasters because together we can make the difference in order to change the world.